Well, this morning, beginning on page 8, we return to our sermons on the series having to do with the pillars of ministry and the long-range plan which the session has put together in their planning for the future. During this series, which we're about the middle of now, we have seen, uh, had a brief introduction to the four ministry pillars, not just of Grace E.P. Church, but of the entire New Testament. We have heard sermons, and we'll hear another one on the subject of outreach. We have heard and will continue to hear about worship, about discipleship, and this morning, a second message on the subject of community. Community, koinonia, fellowship is a very big deal in the New Testament. At least 19 times the word appears in the Greek, all of them outside of the gospel in the latter portion, and it's just simply impossible to talk about the church of Jesus Christ wherever it is found without this important subject of fellowship. And one of the places that we encounter it is in Acts chapter 2. So that is our text this morning, and to that we will turn now as we read God's word together. Peter has been preaching, and it says with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, he save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Mentioned, of course, in this passage in verse 42, is that after having been saved, they devoted themselves, they gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching, Bible study, to the fellowship, which we talk about this morning, and to worship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The Bible wants us to make a shift in our thinking. Many shifts, of course, but on this subject, a, a significant one. The Bible wants Christians to begin to think about one another, not just as friends and acquaintances and people with whom they have something in common in terms of culture. They want, the Bible wants us to shift from thinking of one another just in terms of friends and acquaintances and into a family, brothers and sisters in Christ is the term. And so over and over and over again, too many to count, the Bible speaks in relationship between Paul and the people, between the the people and each other, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now clearly that represents a depth of relationship that's beyond just the surface, that's beyond just the casual. It is much deeper than that. And as I say in the outline, Christian fellowship and Christian community as we saw in verse 42 and and at least 18 other places in the New Testament, were central to the establishment of the Christian church after the ascension of Christ. It says they were devoted to one another. And what we have here in view is something like what the Trinity experiences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect fellowship. We don't have perfect fellowship in community, but they do. 
And they are drawing us into that circle and saying, come and be a part of our relationship. Come and be a part of our friendship. Be a part of our community, and we will enlarge it to include you. What is fellowship? Let me look at a definition with you. Fellowship is a deep association, deeper than the surface. It is a true communion. It is a close relationship of which the highest example is marriage. There are indissoluble bonds based on being in Christ. We have a connection to one another. We may still regard one another as friends and associates and acquaintances, but the Bible says something deeper has gone on. Something real, organic, and sincere is there. You have a connection to me, and I have a connection to you, whether I know you well or not. And it is a spiritual connection. It's not based on the fact that we live near each other necessarily or know each other really well through other associations or because we have the same interests. It's based on a spiritual reality that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Fellowship is not meeting occasionally in a church building or maybe even assembling in the church fellowship hall or shaking hands in the narthex. It is not superficial and Crucially, it is not optional. Fellowship is a part of the church of Jesus Christ, and it's not something we may or may not do. It is something that we are indeed commanded to do. And then we see as the early church immediately gave themselves to these things at that time. Now we know that as Peter preached, there were many people gathered in Jerusalem. And in that large city, surely they were not good, all, all good friends. And these 3,000 who were baptized and added to their number that day, among them were surely many, many strangers. But immediately they devoted themselves, verse 42, there's, there's no transition here between 41 and 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is a new dimension in their lives and in ours, and it's not optional. Furthermore, fellowship is a command. Do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves, he says. Now, just because we gather together doesn't mean that something's going to happen, but we're sure if we don't gather together that it won't. Because without connection, there cannot be community. But there are many enemies to community and to connection and fellowship. And the first enemy of community under the section of who has to do with identity issues. One of the things that separates us is that we see ourselves differently. We see ourselves as certain age, as certain achievements. Who am I? What is the basis of my identity? And there are, frankly, many insecurities about this. If I, if I am friendly to you, you might reject me. You might find me unacceptable in some way. You might push me away. And I'm not all that confident myself in who I am. And I'm not all that sure about my own abilities. So these insecurities and our fears of acceptance lead to divisions among us. But who are these people who cannot get enough of each other? They are people from all over. Jew, Gentile, elderly, male, female children, people from the area around Palestine, whatever their ethnic background, people from afar off who've come into the city, the capital city of the Jews. These people did not know each other. These people were not of the same 
ethnicity. They were not of the same experience. They were newcomers. They had just been brought into the kingdom of God. And it wasn't based on their temperament or their common interests. They hadn't all joined the same club or gone in the same direction politically or thought in the same way about life. They represented different temperaments, types, cultures, and classes. And they were all included. In spite of the differences and different identities, everyone was welcome. Some of them, you looked at them and said, well, that's a poor man, that's a poor family. Others you looked at and said, well, he's well-educated and she's of a wealthy line like Lydia. Those are the things you saw on the surface, but those things didn't matter. People were brought together nevertheless and included. Neither Greek nor Jew, says Paul, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. Surely there were some who were slaves who were gathered in, who had nothing in common with the free men and free women of that society. But now they did. They were new in Christ, and they were brought together under his banner. Now, Jesus spoke of this, of course, and I make reference to Mark 10. We looked at this earlier in our series on Mark. Who are my mothers and brothers, he says. The ones who do the will of my Father, the ones to whom I'm connected spiritually, those are my mothers and my brothers. Jesus isn't saying that the family is unimportant. What he's saying is that there is a connection that's even more important than the family. The family, of course, is a part of the foundation of the scriptures. But even more important than the family, there is a connection and a community that includes those who love him and would do his will. Do you have a list of people who the gospel has brought to you, brought you in close connection with that otherwise you would have despised or ignored? If you made a list of people that you have learned to love in the, in the Lord, surely many people on that list would be people that you have nothing in common with or didn't think you had anything in common with until you were connected in Christ. Is our identity, is your identity and mine based on somebody who was excluded for you, who was cast out for you, who loved his enemies? Is that the new identity and that new identity turning us into something who embraces those who are different? Jesus says, I lost my identity for you and now I include you in my family. And I am adopting you into my family, I'm bringing you into my family and I want you to get along and I want you to forget your differences and I want you to minimize your identity questions. So one enemy of community is identity. But in Christ, we have been changed. We don't always feel changed. We don't always act changed. But the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Something's happened. And you have a connection with every other believer in this room and all across the world. Now, a second enemy of community is disagreement. Disagreement about what's important. We all have various values and priorities. But unity can arise out of submission to one another and to scripture in reverence for Christ. One of the great passages of the New Testament, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now submission implies giving up something. Submission implies serving and coming underneath the oversight of someone else. And that includes sometimes giving up or moderating 
our opinions and our priorities and our agendas. It means listening to what the other person considers to be important and not laughing at them or rejecting them because you don't share that priority or that emphasis. Whenever they came together, these people always did the same thing. In large and small groups, in the temple area and in homes, they devoted themselves publicly when there was preaching, privately in small groups, to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves publicly in large assemblies and privately in homes to the fellowship. And they devoted themselves in large worship services in the temple area and elsewhere and in homes. So they were learning together, they were loving together, and they were expressing liturgy together. They were enjoy enjoying worship. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now here again, this is a shift in our thinking. We think of what we want to do, and we think of the things that we have been taught. But the Bible says when you're a new creature in Christ, you are now devoted to a new set of teachings. And the new set of teachings are those of the apostles, the word of God, and, his, and its wonderful insights. So they devoted themselves to learning, but they devoted themselves also to loving, to working one another into their lives. They bore each other's burdens. They were honest with each other. They welcomed and affirmed and admonished and confronted. Now, these words are not in this passage, but they are in other, other sections of the New Testament. When community is brought up, this is what it means. It means to bear each other's burdens. It means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It means to be honest with each other. It means to welcome and affirm each other, to admonish and confront each other. This is what the Bible says is the essence of the Christian life in community. It's foreign to us. We don't like conflict, so we draw back. We don't want to get involved. We don't want to come into a situation where our priorities might be challenged. But they did. And they did, recognizing, as Peter says, that they were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, who were brought together under one God, and one scripture, and one family, all adopted into that family in Christ. So there are two enemies of community that we mentioned so far. First of all, the enemy of identity. I know who I am. I'm not so, good, so sure about who you are. The second enemy is the enemy of disagreement. What are we going to do with conflict? Your priorities are not my priorities. The way you see things are not the way I see things. That can tend to break us apart. But thirdly and most significantly, the enemy of community is selfishness. Our new identity in Christ should humble us out of our egotism and yet make us so infallibly insecure in God's love that we are able to embrace rather than exclude those who are different. They worked together. They gave up. They sacrificed for one another. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. In word and deed, they acted against native selfishness. 
They made sure that other people who had less had more. They made sure that anyone who was in need did not just walk away, but their needs were addressed. Selfishness was suppressed. Thinking of ourselves first and only was, has, been, has been changed and exchanged for a concern for the other. And so the church grew daily. And the outcome of this is they were very attractive. It doesn't say that they had great preaching. It lists some of it, but it doesn't comment on the quality of the preaching or teaching. It doesn't say that they had great programs and that everybody wanted to do what they wanted to do. What it says is God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. People were coming to them and were attracted to them. This unity that they shared was inviting It's rare. Anyone who's lived in this world for very long at all knows that conflict is the order of the day. And disunity reigns supreme among nations, among individuals, within families. Yesterday there was a funeral here for Lee McIntyre and overheard some of the family saying, well, he's not here yet, but nobody wants him to come anyway. I don't know who they were talking about, but... I don't think it was me, because I was already here. (laughs) Well, he's not here yet, but nobody wants him to come anyway. What's that? What did he do? I don't know. Disunity. The family gathered around. Friends gathered around for the funeral. And somebody's not welcome, even though they're part of that family and that circle of friends. You know how it is. This world breaks apart. It doesn't come together. Marriages dissolve. They don't seem to increase some, in many cases in unity. There are many dangers and threats to, dis, to, to, to the unity that, and community that we have. And disunity is rampant in international affairs, within nations, within families, within marriages, and sometimes within our own hearts. So what did they do that was so attractive? We don't know the details. We don't know how often they met. It says they met daily. They met very often in those early days. But it says in verse 47, they were praising God. Let's don't pass too quickly over that. One of the characteristics of the church that was so attractive was the praise of God. Now, surely that included worship. But it seems like It was more than just within the context of the liturgy and the worship. It seems like it was a characterization of how they treated one another. They praised God to one another. The dynamite and the engine of the church by the Holy Spirit is the praising of God. How is it that we can love and confront one another? By praising God. The bigger context is not conflict. The bigger context is we have a great Savior, and he wants us to get along, so let's see if we can't fix this. How do we heal guilty people, people who have been broken and hurt and their identity has been distorted and crushed by failure? We praise God to one another and we say, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we come to them and we reach out to them, not with endless compassion because none of us has it, but by praising God. And being around somebody who's praising God all the time, at first it's annoying, right? 
How can they be so happy? How can they be praising God all the time? But over time, it breaks us down. It softens our hearts. It, it teaches us true perspective. So they praise God together. They comforted each other by that. They stood together and said, praise the Lord anyway. When someone experienced a loss. They praised the one who was broken for them. This is important. I think this is a change we can easily make. Simply praise the Lord more often. Day by day by day. And when you hear trouble, it's not insensitive to say, praise the Lord. We can be insensitive to trouble, but not simply by uttering those words. And when we point others in the midst of their need to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're doing the best possible thing for them. So by praising God is how we become more attractive. And secondly, by loving one another. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you. And he doesn't mention great preaching. He doesn't mention marvelous buildings and programs. He says, if you love one another. And he took off his outer garment and he came around the table in the upper room and he got down on his knees and gathering a basin and a towel, he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, this is how people will know. And it seems as though these strangers, these 3,000 unacquainted folks soon became attractive to the people around them such that their numbers were added daily because they learned immediately to love one another something that the Christian is to be expert at. In fact, John says in 1 John 3, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. That's the test. Not church attendance. Not giving to charity and to the church's ministries. But whether we love one another. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. It's not natural. It's representative of a miraculous transformation. Implicit in this is that loving our brothers is not going to happen unless we have passed from death to life. And maybe not even then, because the church of the New Testament is also a divided church. It's struggling with these things. Even though it's in the early days, Paul is mentioning again and again the necessity of common participation and communion in Christ because the church was even then tending to break apart. But we know that we have been passing from death to life because we love our brothers. That's a change. That's a major shift in priorities. From me and my selfishness and my identity and what I want to you and your identity. Well, love is sort of a sentimental term. What do we mean by it? I break it down to three things I think that the New Testament teaches us. It doesn't mention it in this passage, but I think we can easily get it from other places. How do I love you? How do you love me? We listen. How often are we in conversation where we won't even wait for the person to stop long enough? We interrupt them. We're not listening. We're thinking about what we want to say. That's not good. A love includes listening. Men aren't good at it, at least so they say. 
we could do better. Listen to your wives. Listen to your parents. Listen to those in authority over you. What are they saying? If you are confused, ask them to clarify. Love is also submission and service brought together. Love is doing something for you, for someone else, outside of myself. Love is, as I said in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is saying you first. Not just what you have to say, but how can I help you? You know, we can be good listeners and then just walk away. We can listen until... I remember t- talking to a man in, uh, in Nebraska. His wife had gone out to visit her sister in California. And I said, Everett, when's she coming back? And he said, when she gets the visit out of her. When she said everything she wants to say. I thought that was a good way to put it. He said, I don't know when she's coming home, but she's coming home when she gets the visit out of her. But she didn't just want to talk to her sister and listen to her sister. They wanted to help each other. They wanted to be in each other's presence. They wanted to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So don't just listen. Take action. Make amendment. Act upon what's said. And thirdly, don't forget the truth. Love is not just sentiment. We have to order our relationships around the truth. And we must stick to the truth. So we must therefore confront one another and explain to one another and share with one another the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's love. Love is not saying, oh, that's fine and Don't worry about it only. It's also saying what the scriptures teach us about God's providences and his care for us, etc. So I conclude with these questions. Are you devoted to fellowship? That is, do you go out of your way mentally and physically to move toward others in the body of Christ And to see them not just as acquaintances, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. With an organic, familiar connection that is spiritual and real and actual. Do you think of the church in this way? If you don't, we are poorer for it. We are weaker for it. Do you delight in being able to see your brothers and sisters in Christ in various ways throughout the week and month and year? This should be one of your great delights. And when you're set aside in sickness or on vacation or some other way detained from the fellowship, you should miss us. You should miss the connections that you feel. And the church at its best is always building those relationships, building bridges across generations, building bridges across races, across culture, across language, across every barrier. For we are all one in Christ. Are you praising God for others? Are you speaking the praise of God throughout your language through the week, even those who have wronged you? i got a long way to go on this one. Uh, please don't ask Gail for any specifics. But I've got a long ways to go on this one. I think we all do. Praising God for others, even those who have wronged you. And then thirdly, Let's not forget that this is what Jesus prayed for. In his high priestly prayer, on the night of his betrayal, 
as one of his last acts upon the earth and last requests from his father, he said, Father, I pray that they all may be one, even as you and I are one, that we may be one together. These last seven verses of John 17 are marvelous, and they are the end of his prayer. That was what was closest to our Savior's heart. The reason he went to the cross was for the eradication and forgiveness of sin, but also so that his people, different as they are, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, old and young, whatever, would be one would have real communion and fellowship together. Now we know as our congregation that we are widely geographically dispersed and it isn't easy for us to get together during the week. There's a lot of driving involved. Many of us don't like to drive at night, etc. It's, it's, it requires an effort. But it should be made. And we are seeking to make it through the formation of small groups that are meeting in homes in various localities around the area. There's one today being drawn up in the Deal and Churchton and Shadyside area. There's a lunch at the Stalnoses right after the service today for people there. We'll be getting to your neighborhood as soon as we can. Right now there are three. One in Riva, one that meets on Sunday night at my house that is the high school, parents of high school youth, and then one that meets in the Davidsonville area at the Austins. We're, we're coming we're seeking to build this into the life of the church for the first time in the history of our congregation. You will be invited. We hope you'll join us because this unity and community is simply vital. It's filled with the truth of the New Testament, and we are seeking to be faithful to that truth. May the Lord bless you as you reach out of yourselves, as you extend yourself to others. It's painful. There's conflict but it's right. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for allowing the forces of disunity to divide us and to discourage us. Forgive us for giving in to disagreement without resolution. Forgive us for not valuing the connections of strangers and acquaintances more than we do those with whom we normally associate. Forgive us for not being like the New Testament church and seeking to fulfill your prayers in John 17, that we might be one. Your death upon the cross has accomplished our unity, has made and built a connection and a bridge between each one of us. Help us to walk across that bridge, to get to know others who are not normally associated with us and to build through this congregation a great witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. For you said that they would know we were Christians, not by our music, not by our preaching, not by our building and our programs, but by our love. May we let it shine and may we praise you, Lord, every day. May we be like Judah, the one who leads forth in praise. As the people of Israel marched, it was Judah at the front, singing the praises of God. Help us to do that too throughout life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.